Hey, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming of the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. I'm chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, one of my partners in the firm. Uh, Elizabeth, I want to uh, sort of touch base on whether living trusts are oversold. Well, I would say that they are. And when we mean oversold, we mean, is there a practice within the estate planning community, not just in Tucson, but nationally speaking, that a go-to recommendation is to create a revocable living trust? And I would say yes. I would say they're often promoted without really being necessary. That doesn't mean that it's bad if you already have a trust. Uh, it just means that the whole conversation about whether or not a trust is really an essential instrument to create, that's something to discuss. It's, it's not something to presume. Right, absolutely. I think um, I would guess that we are at Fleming and Curdy PLC, we are in the kind of the median for local practice, that we probably do trusts uh, maybe a slightly more often than the average estate planning law firm, but uh, but we certainly are not uh, one of those firms that, that thinks everybody needs to do a trust. And maybe that means in something less than half of our clients' cases uh, might we recommend doing a trust. By the, by the way, for most of our clients, it's also correct to say that it's not an, a yes and no answer. It's a, it's a gradation. Yeah, it might make sense for you to do a, to do a trust, but it probably is not a terrible mistake if you choose not to. It's really just a cost-benefit analysis. That's really the key. Whether or not to do a trust is a cost-benefit analysis. What benefit do you get and how much are you going to have to pay us extra to do the trust and, and can you justify it? It's a cost-benefit analysis, Robert, but even more than that, I think it is about administration and it's about an understanding. So when I have somebody come in to me to prepare an estate plan and that person comes in and just insists that I create a trust, I step back and I look at some of the questions, some of the rationale, and really try and talk about why my client wants a trust. Oftentimes people think that they should have one. I meet with many young parents and they come in and they say, well, we now have young kids and we think we have to have a trust, right? And I try and caution people from starting with the presumption that they should have one. If somebody comes in and they start to ask for the kind of complicated trust planning that I don't think is necessary and that I don't think the person's gonna understand, I'm simply not going to create that trust plan. So one of the reasons that those conversations are important up front is to make sure that the client understands the kind of administrative duties that will go on during his or her life if we do create a trust. And that means that whether you need a trust or not is partly related to how old you are not to put too fine a point on it, how likely it is that you might die during the the useful life of your estate plan. Which, by the way, what do you think is the useful life of an estate plan, Elizabeth? That's a good question. I would say that the useful life, when we talk about that, might be the amount of time that you need to wait before you update an estate plan. And I would say that for most people, that's every five to seven years. However, when we create an estate plan for somebody at Fleming and Curdy, we presume that that estate plan is going to be effective the date that it's signed and continue to be something that will be an effective document until that person decides they want an update. 
And another element in determining whether you ought to have a trust is what kinds of assets you have, whether you have assets in more than one state. If you have a, a, a summer cottage in Michigan or worse yet, a fractional interest in a summer cottage in Michigan, and you also have your house in California that you haven't sold since you moved here from, from California, well, that's going to make you a much better candidate, a much better candidate for a living trust than otherwise, since we might have to do probates in each of the states where you own real estate. And that, for most people, that's really the core question about a trust. Can you use the trust beneficially to avoid the cost and nuisance of a probate process? Probate is not as bad as most people think it is, which is not to say it's a lot of fun and everybody ought to rush out and do one. But, uh, but, but back to that cost-benefit analysis, it might not be worth much expense to avoid if there are other easy ways to avoid the probate process. And when we talk to people about whether or not to do a trust, one of the really big picture questions I have also relates to the beneficiaries of the estate. Are any of the beneficiaries minors or any of the beneficiaries people who may have special needs, may be receiving any kind of government benefits? There are a whole series of different questions that we want to talk to you about before we make any kind of recommendation about a trust plan. The other thing, Robert, is when we talk about a cost-benefit analysis, I want people to understand that all of our fees are on our website in the About Us section. And when we look at creating an estate plan with a will and powers of attorney for a married couple, if we're not including any kind of trust plan, that's probably going to be less than $1,000. But if we start talking trust planning, there's going to be a range usually between about 1900 and about 3500 that we might be in, depending on the complexity of the plan that we draft. So that, that really plugs into the cost-benefit analysis. That tells you the cost side of it. And if it's going to cost you an extra $2,000 just to pick a number to, uh, to have a trust, do you get $2,000 worth of benefit? That's exactly the question you have to ask. Ultimately, that's your question, you the client's question. We can give you all the information. Um, very seldom do we do, as Elizabeth indicated a few moments ago, and, uh, and say, no, you cannot do a trust, or yes, you must do a trust. For the vast majority of people, it's your cost-benefit analysis to make. Uh, I, I Absolutely, uh, we, we are delighted to have our fee information on the website, and we have had it either printed in our front office before websites existed or on our website since we had one. So for the last 30 years, our fees have been publicly available and, uh, and we're proud to have been that transparent. So you get some sense of what it might cost if you do want to set up a, a, a trust. I started to say special needs trust because I wanna emphasize something you said, Elizabeth, that if you have a child with a disability on public benefits, that's one of those rare cases where we will tell you, yes, you have to do a trust. We won't bludgeon you into it, but, uh, but that's the right answer in almost every case. And the same goes for if you have a spouse, Robert, who is receiving public benefits and you're trying to look at some long-term planning for that spouse. So there you have it. Uh, oh, our website. Uh, I'd like to just call it out a little bit because there's a lot of information there elder-law.com. We are early adopters, but not quite early enough to get the version without a hyphen. 
That belongs to an oddly similarly named law firm in Massachusetts. You can go visit them too and then compare our website and theirs and feel free to tell us who you think has, has uh, done more honor to the name. Elder-law.com will get you to Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm where you'll find Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman and Robert Fleming. Hey, that's us. And, uh, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast episode.